this episode, we continue our look back with some selections from Season 2 of Writers' Festival Radio from Spring 2021. While each interview clip includes an introduction, in this episode, we've also included brief readings from The Centaur's Wife by Amanda LeDuc, Speak Silence by Kim Eklund, Gutter Child by J.L. Richardson, and The Relatives by Camilla Gibb. Here's Amanda LeDuc sharing an excerpt from her brilliant novel, The Centaur's Wife. that the father and his children spent the rest of their days on the mountain. After a while, the father stopped dreaming about his two-legged children running in the village, and eventually, long years later, he dreamed less of his wife. His children grew happy and strong, for they'd known no other life. Though sometimes a rage would break in them, and the father would be reminded of his wife, his human love, whose anger had erupted like a volcano, whose rage still burned bright at his betrayal. Other times, the fierceness of their anger would remind the father of himself and the dark things he harbored, the grief that never went away. He tried to be gentle with them when they raged, but the children grew wary of their own anger, the same way they grew wary of their father's love for them and the way he so jealously guarded their home. When their father died, after many more years, they buried him beneath the three willows and wept over his grave, then slept there, sprawled beneath the stars. The next morning, when the sun came up, new beings pulled themselves out of the dirt where their father had been, beings that also had the heads and arms of humans and the strong bodies of horses. When the children looked at all of these new siblings, they saw the mountain's own glimmering anger in their deep and darkened eyes, and understood that though the mountain had taken their father back and given the children companions so that they would not be alone, it had also not forgotten their father's betrayal in leaving the mountain so long ago. It had given them a gift, but also a warning. And that is how the centaurs came to be. Stephanie, thank you so much for being with us today. It's it's a real pleasure to have you. And, um, you know, this remarkable book, The Deficit Myth, uh, which is just appearing now uh, in paperback, it's such a fascinating read because especially during the pandemic, as we've, we've economies all over the world, we've been trying to wrap our head around what does it mean to live a good life? What is the limit of, of a government's involvement in, in our day-to-day but it seems like you know you have to start a book like this by explaining almost the basics to people. And so we think of a government money in the same way that we think of a household budget. And so I wanted to start by asking you about money itself and how do we where where does the value in money come from? I mean, we use it all the time. We think of it as as almost a part of the natural world, but it, it is artificial. It is created. And so I want to, if we can, just start by by the basic idea of what is public money. Is that a good place to start? Yeah, I think it's a really good place to start um, because there's so much confusion, as you said. Um, you know, 40 years ago or or so, Margaret Thatcher uh, told the British people that there is no public money. She just denied the very existence of public money. She said, there is only taxpayer money. And I think that really is the way we think about government money. You know, when the government spends money to the extent that any of us spend a moment 
thinking about it at all. Uh, <laughs> we probably think, well, they got it from us, right? That's our that's our money. And you will hear sometimes people say, "I pay your salary," you know, when they get really mad at their um, elected officials or mm-hmm. something. So we we really don't think, in a sense, that the government has any money of its own. That what it does is come and take money from the rest of us. And so we are taxpayers, and that's how the government gets money. They come to well, us. And, and, and they're explicit about that, is we need to pay for this somehow, right? Anytime there's a new spending program, especially if it's, say, education or health or infrastructure, uh, we hear from, from a whole string of politicians and economists and extremely intelligent people, well, how are we going to pay for this? We have to pay for it. So who are you going to tax, right? That's the exactly. question that's asked. Exactly. And that's exactly what Margaret Thatcher wanted to do with that uh, statement of hers by denying the existence of public money and putting all of the burden onto the taxpayer. What she told people was, listen, if you want things, you can't simply expect the government to deliver public goods and services on behalf of the people. We have no money to do that. If you want them, you're going to have to pay up. So it shifts this burden onto the taxpayer. And so that you're really forced to ask yourself, wait a minute, do I really want to give up my money in order to have, you know, better funded schools. I don't have kids in school anymore. My kids have graduated, you know, so then it becomes, I'm going to pay for someone else to have these things. So yes, it, it is a, it is a problem because um, that's not the way it works. And the government does have the ability to fund things using its own money. And it can do that without turning to taxpayers. And if anyone you know, doesn't believe it's the case, just look what's been happening for the last year. Governments around the world have committed trillions and trillions of dollars in spending to deal with coronavirus pandemic, the ensuing economic fallout. And I haven't noticed very many governments that went out and raised taxes as all of this was happening. So it it should be increasingly obvious to people that governments actually do have public money and you know it was uh, it was a prime minister that came much later than Margaret Thatcher, um, Theresa May, who told the people again of Great Britain, uh, "There's no magic money tree, mm-hmm. you see." So this is how they deny or attempt to deny the spending capacity of the state. We don't have money. You do. You have to pay for it. Excerpt, speak silence. Cosmos was laughing at me, and he understood little of what I was playing at, as I had understood little of his bridges. We are each born of particular violence on this blue and green planet in the dark and lifeless universe. And rather than be here together in awe, we war with each other. I was not thinking about any of this that first night with Cosmos. No matter how many violent stories we told each other to pass the dark hours, we were really only thinking about making love together. All that first night until dawn we talked. The truly devastating things had not yet happened. Today, we're going to be spending time with Annalee Newitz. Annalee writes science fiction and nonfiction. They are the author of the novels The Future of Another Timeline, and Autonomous, which won the Lambda Literary Award. As a science journalist, they are a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times and have a monthly column in New Scientist. 
They are also the co-host of the Hugo Award-winning podcast, Our Opinions Are Correct. Previously, they were the founder of io9 and served as the editor-in-chief of Gizmodo. Annalie will introduce us to their latest book, Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age, and then we'll talk about what the cities of the past can tell us about the road ahead. So Four Lost Cities is a look at recent archaeological discoveries that shed light on why people abandoned uh, ancient cities that were really at the heart of their civilization. So the question is, um, why after spending sometimes centuries building a city, would people turn their backs on it? Um, And so there's been uh, a great deal of work over the past 20 years um, among archaeologists and historians and anthropologists I'm kind of trying to figure out why these movements happen, these these big social movements where people kind of come into a city and come out of a city. And that was what I was interested in. And it's funny because I started the project by wanting to write about cities that never die. And I was going to focus on really, really old cities that have been continuously occupied, like Damascus, which has been occupied for thousands of years, or, or even a place like Um, you know, like London, which has been occupied by, you know, for a couple thousand years, Um, still pretty impressive. Um, And then I just got really interested in the idea of cities that are abandoned and then are then subsequently called lost, even though we all basically know where they are. Uh, Because it kind of lets you see, it kind of lets you tell a life story of a city a little bit. You sort of get to see it grow up and, and, you know, have a kind of a fancy middle age where it gets really uh, popular and lots of people move there. And then it it goes into decline and dies. And so you get a neat little narrative or maybe not neat. In fact, they're quite messy narratives, really. Um, But at least you kind of see a beginning and an end. Um, And I think that was that's why I wound up being drawn to these four cities is that they had such interesting and different life stories. So let's maybe go through the the four cities. And maybe can you just tell us a little bit about Chetelhayuk, where it is, um, uh, how it was built and and what we know about it? Sure. So this is a Neolithic city, um, which means it was built at a time when uh, stone tools were the height of technology. And they were pretty pretty high tech, actually. You can do a lot with stone tools. Um, Çatalhöyük is located in central Turkey, and it was a proto-city or a city, depending on who you talk to. It was definitely the city of its day, because at its largest, um, there were probably about 5,000 people, maybe as much as 10,000 people living there at the same time. And this was a period in human history when most people were either living in very small farming communities of maybe 50 or 100 people, or they were nomadic. Um, and they were living in, again, very small communities of people who settled only seasonally in different locations and, and spent all their time on the road uh, or spent most of their time on the road. And so it's a very, it occupies a very special place in human history when we're making a transition from a largely nomadic species to a largely settled species. Um, and, you know, if you listen to some uh, thinkers today, you know, maybe this was the greatest tragedy in human history that we did this. <laughs> um, but regardless of whether you think it was a good thing or a bad thing, it was a huge thing. It would have required humans to completely reorient their relationship to the land and to each other. And that's why 
I suggest in the book and what you were talking about, that this would have really been the first time in history when people thought of themselves as being from a place instead of being from a family. Because if you're a nomad, um, it's really your band or your family or your tribe that matters. It doesn't matter where you're from is, is not even a question because you, you travel over a landscape. But once you're living in a settlement year round, that place becomes part of who you are. And the way that we see the people at Chatalhuyuk showing us that in their architecture is that they built their homes uh, with all kinds of very personal pieces inside the walls. I, I shouldn't say pieces, but they, they built their homes with a lot of um, symbol, symbolic objects embedded in the walls as if they were really trying to lay claim to them. And perhaps the most startling symbolic object to us as modern people is that they buried their dead under their beds in, in their homes. And I think that um, once we kind of get over our modern taboo about how kind of upsetting that might be, um, we can start to understand how people who had never lived in a single place before might use put it might use their ancestors' bones as a way of kind of laying claim to land the way they had once laid claim to family. It's a way of joining the family to the land. And once you see it from that perspective, you realize that Chatalhuyuk, the city, was a living being for the people who lived there. Um, the way cities are for us now, like people often talk about their cities as, you know, as a person or as a personality. Um, uh, and in fact, uh, N.K. Jemison's latest novel, The City We Became, is about literally cities being embodied in people. And, um, and in fact, a lot of the stuff that she talks about in that novel is kind of echoed in Four Lost Cities. Gutter Child by J.L. Richardson. Chapter One. The driver looks in my direction, full of worry. Her lips are red, glossy, and pouted, and there's a crease in her forehead like she's the one with problems, not me. I stare out the window, wishing I could go back and put my old life back together, which is impossible, I know. So here I am instead, hours away from the only home I've ever known and driving up a long gravel road through a tunnel of trees with branches that reach down like fingers, hungry for touch. This is Livingstone Academy, Miss Femia says, as we pull up to a grand white house with black shutters and a door that's green like a swamp. The car slows to a stop under a droopy willow, and I step out in what feels like a whole different world. I take one deep breath and close my eyes, and when I open them again, Miss Femia is standing in front of me with her tight bun and waxy mouth. She takes my hand in hers, rubbing my scar with her thumb, the hideous X on the back of my right hand that's ugly and raw. She sighs, and I wonder if it's sadness in her eyes because it's hard to tell with mainlanders. Pity looks very much the same. I know this wasn't the plan, she says, but let's make the most of it, hey? Her voice is high and hopeful, and I hate the way it sounds, like forgetting the life I had is my best option like that's even possible. I really think you might like it here. I think your mother would have really liked this place, she says. I want to tell her that what mother would probably like is to be living instead of dead, to be back home with me instead of wherever it is she is now. But Miss Femia doesn't have children, and people without children always share silly bits of wisdom, like it will all go to waste if they don't. Yes, let's make the most of it, I say. 
turning up the corners of my mouth as high as I can manage, which isn't much. You can do this, Elamina, she says, wrapping her fingers around the doorknob, holding the swamp-colored door with her back. You can find happiness here. But happiness isn't something a kid like me can afford to hold out for. Today we'll hear my conversation with Arkady Martin about her Tix Kalan books, a memory called Empire, which won the Hugo Award, and its companion novel, A Desolation Called Peace. So let me quickly explain for those who haven't read the books yet what an imago is in the context of um, the Tex Kalan universe and on LaSalle Station. It's basically a technological brain implant that puts the memories and skill set and some of the personality of the person who used to have your job in your head. Um, I have been assured by a very skilled neurologist friend that it is completely impossible for it to work the way I described. Uh, and I kind of took that on board and was like, okay, so it's completely impossible. This is science fiction. I'm going to do it anyway. The reason I wanted to do it was that I was thinking about the different kinds of memory. So Tix Kalan does memory through cultural coherence, through a constant ability to evoke the past and the great art of the past. It's why they do all of this internal citation. That's why they have poetry that references other poetry. LaSalle has made a very different choice because what they're most interested in is not ideological memory, but institutional memory. The memory that says that not just you know how to, let's say, repair an engine, but that you have the experience and the little tiny clues, like where in this shop do we keep those pieces? I can go get them quickly. That kind of institutional memory. You see this a lot in um, books on how to manage people in corporations. Like, What is the, the bus number for your, your department? That's a terrible thing. The bus number is how many people can get hit by a bus in your workplace and have your workplace still be functional? you want that number to be larger than one. Because if that number is one, you are really, really screwed if bad luck happens. But how do you get institutional memory, experiential memory to be passed down? I mean, us here in the 21st century without the benefit of things like Imago machines, we write down procedure manuals and we have people shadow each other through training. LaSalle Station is basically a parked generation ship. They can't leave and they don't have a planet. They can support about 30,000 people. It's a really tight environment with very small margins for error. And accidents happen in space. Airlocks, cosmic radiation, explosions, all kinds of nasty things. And if you lose the people who keep your tiny boat of 30,000 lives going. You can't get them back fast enough. So it's one of those problems that I'm deeply fascinated by. And I love generationship stories. I always have. 
Um, so I thought, what if, what if we could just fix that? What would that do to a culture if we had the fix already? So that's kind of how I came up with them. The other thing they're based on is classical Armenia to go back to my Byzantium uh, inspiration. The conflict between the expanding Byzantine empire in the 10th and 11th centuries and what they encounter on their Eastern border amongst other things, that's the autocephalous Armenian kingdoms. There are several little Armenian kingdoms and some of what Mahit is dealing with are things that people were dealing with in the 11th century. There's a white ship floating on the horizon, on its way perhaps to Asia. Adam's experience really doesn't go further east than Afghanistan, and he's not really sure how that knowledge would translate to the rest of the world. China is all over East Africa now, in mining and infrastructure creating a generation of fatherless half-Chinese Africans who are being neglected and shunned. We're such sloppy creatures, man. What is the point of us? To just keep producing children? But we don't even take care of the ones we have. Today, we'll hear a conversation between festival founder Neil Wilson, who runs our Republic of Childhood Youth Literacy and Self-Expression program, and Iceland's Andres Nair Magnusson. He's a writer and documentary filmmaker who ran for president of Iceland in 2016 with environmental issues on his agenda and came in third. Andres' work is translated into more than 30 languages and is available in more than 40 countries. He's written novels, poetry, plays, short stories, and essays. He's a popular public speaker, and his third documentary as a co-director is Apocalypse, which is complete and will likely be released later this year. His most recent book in English translation is On Time and Water, which works to reframe the climate conversation and asks us how we can address an issue that seems so overwhelming and abstract, but is as urgent as life and death. Here's their conversation. It's 2020 now, one year after the movie Blade Runner takes place, five years after the future in Back to the Future, 36 years after the Orwellian year 1984, we are so hypnotized by progress and revolutions that our relationship with the future is characterized by irresponsibility. For us, a century is like a whole eternity, a thing beyond imagination. So I guess this really addresses um, how we have become addicted or hypnotize and are failing to take on our responsibilities for our children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. Yes, so culturally, you know, you and me, we we are raised with uh, the year 2000 as some kind of a far, far away uh, utopian future. And suddenly we're like, uh, we still believe that we're relatively young, but but we're like 20 years past this future. And uh, and uh, universities are full of people born in the year 2000. Mm. And culturally, we have never updated long-term thinking. And, and my idea in the book, and one of the fundaments of the 
problem is that when a scientist says 2070, 80, 90, 100, we feel no urgency. We don't, we, we're totally reckless against these dates. We, we don't feel responsibility. We don't feel connected. We don't feel responsible. And we don't have any policy, you know, economics. They, they, they don't, they can't calculate worth of anything in the year 2070. Everything beyond the next, beyond a 30 year investment just, just doesn't count. So, uh, so we're in this paradigm of uh, short-term thinking and, and short-term gain, which has maybe brought some gain and some, some, uh, some progress or, or whatever. But uh, we're so reckless in, because everything that we're emitting now is, is uh, creating a bigger burden for people up in the year 2070, 80, 90, and even us in our older years. But... Uh, so culturally, I thought you can't really talk about climate change without addressing this fundamental problem of of, uh, of being so disconnected to the long term. So that's how I do these uh, thought experiments of uh, when is someone still alive that you will love. So I, I sit with my grandmother in uh, in her kitchen and with my daughter and. Uh, we calculate, you know, when will my daughter become as old as grandmother and find out 2,102. And uh, and my daughter, like she had never calculated that. She was 12 at the time or no, 10 at the time. And, uh, and then, okay, 2,102 when she becomes as old as grandmother. And if she has a favorite 10-year-old in her life, when, when is that person becoming 94 as my grandmother was? And my daughter comes up with a date 2,186. So we're just thinking about in the kitchen. Imagine that she might be sitting in this kitchen talking to somebody that will remember her in the year 2,186. And it's not an abstract calculation. It's just a very likely, it's a very likely situation. That's 262 years across time. Yes. So, so my... My daughter can touch my grandmother and be influenced by her uh, her life story and her uh, her knowledge and her uh, presence. And my daughter will probably be able to influence somebody that will still be talking about her in the year two thousand one hundred eighty six. And that person might have first hand stories from somebody that was born in the year two thousand. No, 1924. So 262 years is the time that you can touch with your bare hands. And uh, so that was uh, the attempt, the thought experiment in my book was to take climate science and, and uh, mythology and, and, but then also take this super personal point of view, this just, uh, the, what, what is our, uh, like, in, how is our intimate time? What, when is someone still alive that you will love? And, and if you calculate that and you start acting accordingly to that, we might be surprised by how fast the change starts when it starts finally. That is when we have uh, kind of gone over the curve because I think the generation that is now in the universities that went through the corona crisis where uh, all economics were kind of turn, turned on their head 
and suddenly the state was just uh, printing money and and making all sorts of rules and regulations for the common good. I think they will ask this question of uh, why don't we do that towards the uh, the climate crisis? And I don't think when they are paying into pension funds to be paid out in the year two thousand seventy, I don't think they will have any longing to to uh, uh, and and when they when they see that will not be spent on the golf course but on on some climate protection gear or something, or uh, or coastal uh, erosion, you know, spending or something, I think they will think. I, I think this generation will be much closer to the year two thousand one hundred. Yes, and and I think they will start acting responsibility responsibly. Uh, because I don't think any generation wants to be totally self-destructive. And I think, you know, much of the infrastructure that we live with was in a way built with good intentions of wanting to uh, live in prosperity or or make life easier for uh, your children or your grandchildren. And we're in this impossible situation where almost every job we have and all our activity is just not, not leading into that direction. And uh, and that dilemma will cause lots of cultural kind of uh, lots of cultural response will come from that. Lots of Me Too hashtags of uh, of how you're entitled to do things, and uh, lots of laws and regulations, and lots of uh, lots of progress, of course, also in technology. And and uh, so I think lots of disruption will happen. But I'm in general. I, I want to be optimistic that because scientists have told me that uh, it is possible, at least uh, technologically possible, to meet many of these challenges. It is possible within uh, even some of our democratic systems to do that, and and uh, and so I want to be optimistic that that we will find this fine line and 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 make this happen. That was Andre Snare Magnuson in conversation with Neil Wilson. Next episode, we conclude our look back with a selection from season three, which ran in the fall of 2021.